welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We're pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. We are taught this week by lead teacher Randy Pope. Thank you for joining us today. Now, Father, we do now ask you that you would take a story like we've just heard from Ashley and you would weave into our own understanding, our thinking, uh, beliefs that are going to be able to be transformed into a different approach to how we face life and deal with it. We pray, Father, that these uh, beautiful doctrines, doctrines of grace, would come alive even this day to us that we might see your love in a way we've never seen it before, even because we've been here under the teaching of your word. So bless, we ask, in the name of Christ our Savior, we ask it. Amen. Don't you just wish that there were a cure for the all-too-familiar battles of insecurity and uh, anxiety and fear, and the list goes on and on. There is no cure uh, outside of death for Christians to get to go to be with the Lord, and those things are all done away with. But until that time, we're given the opportunity to fight those things, and as we fight, we're given various weapons. One of the weapons that we have been given is the weapon of what I like to call the doctrines of grace. I'll illustrate. I had a, a lady come up to me that had just taken our TFL, Theological Foundation for Leaders. Now, that's a 10-week study that we do. It's uh, offered here, I think, twice a year, and now we're offering it. Just uh, We've done this for uh, since the beginning of our church. And uh, it is a deep dive. It's a study into the things like we're talking about now, the doctrines of grace and even beyond. Rather than it being in a preaching format, there's interaction, there's study, there's preparation, and coming together, it's, a, it's for men and women alike. Anybody who says, I want to go further and deeper and and so forth, so I can use it in my leadership, whatever that form that may be. And uh, the lady came up to me, and this was her quote, as best I could write it down when she did it. I said, she said this, God has gotten bigger to me since being in TFL. There's been a transformation of my heart as God has gotten bigger. I love that. She says, you know, God just got bigger in the study of the doctrines of God's grace. Just got bigger and bigger. And as a result, there is a transformation. I'm going to come back to that at the closing. Well, these doctrines are kind of summarized, at least a big portion of these doctrines of grace are put in a kind of a summary format in Romans 8, particularly verses 29 and 30. But there is a verse that precedes it, verse 28, that's become a very, very loved passage by the Christian community, not just here, but globally. The verse is this. In verse 28, it says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Well, we all want to believe that if we can. We don't always feel that, do we? I, I mean, Ashley made it her story. I, I don't always feel that way. But then her next words, but I know, but I know. And what is it that we know? Well, the next verses give us the uh, kind of the, the answer to why we can hold to that belief. There is a reason. And once we begin to understand that reasoning, we're going to understand ultimately 
the love of God. They say this whole series is really about the love of God. Uh, I know that people hear this series that are, are coming kind of from the outside, never heard this sort of stuff before, and say, this doesn't sound like a loving God to me. And if that's the way it feels to you right now, trust me, you haven't yet gotten through. It'll, it'll, it's mystery, but just, just keep hanging in there. But what you understand is that there's something behind that promise that gives us an understanding of just how much we are loved. And when we get those things and understand them, that's when, like Ashley said at the end, yeah, MS, but talking about this stuff, the love of God, that's enough for me. It overshadows. It makes everything different. So here's verse 29 and 30. It reads like this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, for you that are newcomers and just coming in new, you need to understand that we have been walking through a list of subject matters that have built to the place that we are today. And for you to understand that, you just follow the checks that are on your insert, the points to remember, and you will see what we've covered. I do want to just touch on a few. Going down to number two, where you see three foundations. You have these three that are absolutely important to understand. First, God's sovereignty versus fatalism. We don't believe in fatalism. You believe in the authority and the, and, and the, the, uh, uh, the total understanding that God is truly in charge. Then we looked at man's free will. Man's free will, which means that man is free to choose anything, anything that he or she wants to choose. That's freedom. If you can choose what you want, that's freedom, and we have that. Don't ever let somebody in the teaching of God's sovereignty in any way tell you, and man has no free will. Oh, yes, he does too. Absolutely. Then we come to man's fall. Man's fall is the teaching that man is dead in our sin, which took place in the original sin of our foreparents, Adam and Eve. And as a result of that, we are dead in our trespasses. Literally, those words are in Scripture multiple times. We are dead in our sin. Being dead in our sin says that we now have forfeited our moral ability. We have forfeited any desire for God himself. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We can have desires for the benefits of God, but that's different than truly desiring God himself. And so we lost that in the fall. Then we began teaching what are called the links, the five links of the golden chain of salvation. They summarize much of the doctrines of grace, as we call them. Begins, first of all, with foreknowledge. We looked at it. It's not looking ahead, as many people think. Okay, I know because I forelooked and I see what's happening, and therefore God makes decisions based on what he sees is going to happen. That's a very popular belief today. But it's not the teaching that comes from Scripture in this word at all. It's really foreknowledge loved would help us understand that much better. Then we looked at predestination. And though it's different than many people think, it's not having to do with the choice of who's saved. 
Predestination is actually the destiny of those who are foreknown or foreloved. It's simply the destiny. Calling. We looked at that last week. And calling has to do with that idea of the inward call. Not the outward, hey, let me share with you the good news of Jesus Christ. That's an outward call. Would you come to faith? Very important. But that's different than this. This is the inward call where God speaks to the heart and regenerates it where it now has life to do what a heart alive can do only. And that's the call that God gives. Now with that, uh, we come today to justification. So let's look at justification for a minute. Number four on your outline, justification. As we talk about justification, we need to understand that there is a major obstacle that we have to deal with, even though, okay, a person has been foreknown, they have been predestined, they have been called by God. All those may be true, but we've got an obstacle that's not yet been dealt with, even with those wonderful things laid out before us. That thing which has not been dealt with is sin and the wrath of God that attends the sin that we have in our lives. That's got to be dealt with. And that particular sin, according to Scripture, can only be dealt with, with someone by someone who has no sin. Now, in the economy of God, God allows it to be that someone who is without sin can take the sin of someone else. Now, here's the problem. We're all sinners. So how do we deal with that? Well, here's how it happens. It has to be God himself. That's the person of the Trinity, Jesus, who comes to earth without sin so that then he can take on the sin that we have and he pays for it with his death so that we can have life eternal. That's the story of the gospel, the good news. Something has got to happen with that sin. And this is not just, oh, I say some bad things, I do some bad things. This is stuff that is so heinous. If we could see our hearts, we would be blown away. We'd say, that's me. Yeah, that's me. It's that sinful. So much so that God's wrath actually has to attend to that sin in time. So this introduces this whole doctrine of justification. Now, I realized that last week we discussed the question about God's love for sinners. We hear the common statement, God loves the sinner. He hates the sin, but he loves the sinner, right? And if you remember, I affirmed that was the teaching that I believe personally that Scripture is, is saying. I think he does. I think it's very appropriate to be able to say to anybody that there's a love of God for you. I think that's very appropriate. Now, I shared then that that's a common grace. Love is God giving what is not, or let me put it in the positive. Love is giving us what we need. God does give us what we need. For instance, do we need rain? Is it only Christians that need rain? No. Non-Christians need rain in their yard too. When's the last time you heard a, a weather, you know, forecaster on the radio or television saying, Christians, be excited today, you're getting rain. <laughs> None of the rest are getting it, but you get your rain. 
No, rain comes for anybody and everybody, right? Well, that's needed and that's a gift of God. Do you know that if, if God didn't restrain the sins of our hearts, I mean, we would have no idea how wicked we would be. That's that goodness of God. It's the love that God would do that giving us what's called common grace. I think it's very appropriate to tell a, a person, God loves you. I, I don't struggle with that. I have peers that would and say, well, that's not, but I, I believe that's true. At the same time, though, I also believe that the Bible teaches that God hates the unrighteous. Now, I've been challenged on that. The challenge will come something like this. Well, wait, 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 wait. God is love. The Bible says God is love. And if God is love, then God can't hate. I said, well, he hates sin. We know that. Yeah, I guess so in that regard. But yeah, that's because that's not his creation. He would never hate something that is his creation. And I say, well, he hates Satan. Well, I guess so, but that's, not, that's an angel not made in the image of God. He could never hate that which is in his image. And at that point, I bring some scriptures to bear upon the subject matter. Let's read out of Psalm 5, verse 5. It says this, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You, God, hate all evildoers. If you look at Psalm 11, verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. I won't put it up, but if you look at Proverbs chapter 6, 16 through 19, it talks about six things the Lord hates, seven an abomination of the Lord, meaning the seventh, and that's people, those that are the unrighteous that do the things that he's talking about there. So I believe God can show love to those he hates, those that are truly his enemy. Now, we can call that as a matter of, 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 of words and what kind of words we use, but just know this. Here's the only big issue. Don't think for a minute because we hear God loves you, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. And you go, I know what God does for people he loves. He treats them good at death. And I know he loves everybody. Everybody can find their way. There is a way to God. Let me tell you, this is so important because until we understand the depth of the alienation, the depth of the sin and the wrath that has to attend it, we will never see the love to be so big as it is when we see what he's removed from us, the penalty of sin and sin itself in time. That's the great love of God to do that. Now, I want us to look at seven questions and I want us to kind of rapid fire walk through these. And I think these seven questions will pretty much answer a lot of things that we're asking even this late in the series. The first one is a very simple one, and that is, what is justification? Let's make sure we understand it. Justification is the act of declaring sinners to be righteous. 
It's his declaration at that time we're justified, declared righteous. It's the acquittal of sinners by two things. First, the removing of the wrath that is, has to be headed toward us, and that is deflected, and it goes to Jesus because of his work on the cross. So he actually bears our sins. At the same time, when that happens, we receive his perfect righteousness. So that is the act of justification. Only when we're justified is our sin now fully dealt with by the cross, dealt with for us now, so that it, we can actually experience his death for us on our behalf. And at the same time, the righteousness that is called imputed into us at that moment. We are declared fully righteous. Now, the second question is a very, very important one. The second question is, what is the basis for our justification? Now, this question here is going to reveal a lot about our understanding of salvation. So I'm going to ask you this question in a different form. And I'm going to ask you, if you will, in your own mind to answer the question if you were to give it publicly, and you won't give it publicly, but just to see where are you in the answer to this question. Here's the question. What saves a Christian? What saves a Christian? Or what saves a non-Christian so that they can become a Christian? You that are Christians, what, what saved you? Do you know the common answer in most churches is going to be faith? Because we hear that all the time. Salvation by faith, salvation by faith, salvation by faith. Salvation by faith alone, the cry of the Reformation. Well, is that really what saves us? No. Now, that is the means by which we receive what does save us. It is a celebration of that which does save us, the faith. Very important. But faith is actually a gift of God. It is actually a byproduct of the regeneration that comes in the heart from our calling where God awakens the soul. That along with repentance. Now what saves us is Jesus. It's his work on the cross that saves us. That's the, that is, the, that is the, the basis for our salvation. Now, by believing that, no, it's faith that saves us, that gets us into a big problem because now at that point, we start assuming, okay, if it's faith that saves us, then, then I guess we're, we're really saved by what I do. It just immediately makes God not quite as big, lifts us up a bit and says, it's what I do, I had faith. So uh, Piper, John Piper, who I've often quoted in this series, uh, Piper has uh, put it in, a, I think, a, a great way to, to kind of understand the, the contrast of these two different approaches to belief on this subject matter. I'm going to define them as modern and historical, but this is what he says of those two. First, the modern theory, which is not what we're teaching in, in the scriptures. We don't see that in the scriptures, but it's sovereign saint assisting grace. So really 
We are what's important. We're sovereign. Our choice is our choice. We decide if we want him. We decide if we're going to have faith. We decide if we're going to do. It all starts with us. So we're sovereign. And then there is an assisting grace that we could not be saved without. We understand that. But it's an assisting of our being in charge. We're big. As opposed to the historical view, which is sovereign grace, trusting saint. Now we're seeing it different. Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's the grace that's sovereign. God's grace. That's where it begins. That's the love of God, folks. It doesn't start with us. We're trusting saint. But even our ability to trust, which is good, comes because of what God has done to awaken the soul. Very important to understand that. Both of these views, by the way, they believe that, that all are justified by faith. They believe that all that are justified are glorified. Most all would believe that. The difference is this. Only the historical perspective has the understanding God did it all. That's it. He is the big one. And we are the recipients of what he's done. Very, very important to understand. Now, next question is going to flow from that question. The next question, number three, is this. So for whom did Jesus die? So who did he die for? Well, most people answer that question and say he died for everybody. It's a very common belief today in the church. Uh, I'm going to suggest to you that if that were so, based on the basis of salvation, what the basis is, if it's for everyone he died, then everyone is saved. That is basically the heart of universalism. Universalism says everybody, any way in the world, you can get to God. You know, it's just now a Christless universalism where Christ isn't the issue any longer. It's just everybody's saved. Well, no, that would be the case if he died for everybody. But his salvation, as it's called, an atonement that's limited, sufficient for everybody, but efficient for only those that are foreknown, predestined, and called. I'm going to pause because I, I got to know what you're feeling right now. I know what you're feeling. A lot of you. A lot of you is like, like the lady who I walked in with last night to church. She walks in and she says, you know, this series, it's like so much coming at us. It's like, can you do the series again? <laughs> no. told her about TFL. So there's a way to really dig in and have interaction and ask your questions and all that. Very important. But I said this, and I want you to hear this. So much coming at us. I saw the picture of just a hose, like a fire hose being shot at you with water. And your job is to collect it all as it comes. And it's getting by you and you can't grab it and you can't hold on to it. And it's, it's kind of past you and you go, I can't get it. I can't get it. But I said, but I don't want you to forget 
you're getting soaked. There's an advantage. There is advantage. Remember the beauty of intimacy. You know where intimacy comes from? In part because of mystery. One of our, one of our new uh, residents was asking me a question between the services. I said, I may quote you. Because when they were trying to understand, they weren't here because they just started. They just got here and they said, what is dot? What is dot? Well, it's that board that represents the knowledge of God that is eternal. And that little tiny speck of what we can grasp. And I said, that's mystery. All that stuff out there is mystery. And that's when he made the comment, you know, there's intimacy in mystery, isn't there? I said, that's exactly right. I'll quote you. That's exactly right. So folks, I just want you to know this. Don't make it an issue how much you got, how much you understood, how much went over your head, how much you got soaked. For the rest of your life, I pray that you'll read scripture and go, ooh, there's another drop. And then you're going to hear a teaching and say, oh, there's another drop. And it's going to build and build and build until this love of God that's this becomes this to you. And when it becomes this, that's when you start saying, like Ashley said, that's good enough for me. It's good enough for me. With that, let's look at number four. Number four question is, what about the Bible texts that say God wants everyone to be saved? Well, uh, those texts are like Second uh, Peter 3, 9. It reads this way, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but, the, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And basically, I won't put it up, First Timothy 2, 4 says the same thing. He, he doesn't want anybody to perish. I Meaning his will. So if say, well, that's his will that none should perish, then, then, then it, it, it's going to be that such that he can say, so, well, understand, when we talk about his will, it's used different ways in Scripture. I, I'll give you three of them, and there's probably eight different ways the words will in Scripture are used. Uh, one would be his sovereign, efficacious will. Uh, that's referring to he brings everything to come to pass. That is that way, his will, and everything in his will happens. But it's also used as his preceptive will, which doesn't happen. I mean, nobody perfectly keeps his laws and his commandments. Those are his precepts. Then there's also his disposition. His disposition refers to what pleases him, that none would perish. And he's saying, that is my disposition. Now, we can ask the question that we've already tried to tackle and say, well, wait, wait. Well, if, if he doesn't want any to perish, then why didn't he choose none to perish? Because there are certain things he wants more than other things. And we've already dealt with that, how that would play out. But it is used differently, and I want you to know that. The third word is the word, the way I'm going to suggest that it's being used in the text that we just read. Number five question. Doesn't James teach that justification comes by means of both faith and 
by works. Well, James 2, 24, what does it look like it says? And you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Wow. And we're teaching a theology that is faith alone? That was the outcry and the cry of the, of the, the Reformation. Solo faith, only faith, only faith, only faith. Why? Because there was, a, there was a creeping into the life of church at that time that was basically saying it's works too. You know, you've got to work your way into heaven. God does this and we have to work our way. And, and that was like, no, 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 no. We've got to get away from that. That's not biblical teaching. Oh, yes, it is. Look at this. How about James? The best way I can explain this, many of you have seen it before, I'll just do the abbreviated form, but it's a, the diagram I often call the do-done diagram, and you have God up here, and we have two ways that people try to relate to him. One, according to Scripture, one not. Uh, this one is performance, not what God's Word says, and it starts here, goes to there. It's the religion of do versus you start here, come this way. This is done. This is what Jesus has done for us. That's called grace. That's God's grace. Now, we put the word love down here because if you really understand this, you realize that 2 Corinthians 5 says that his love for us causes us to obey, to serve, call it perform, not in order that God will love us, but because God loves us. So this is not, this is not true faith, just here to here to here. This is true faith. It goes all the way around. So I'll give you a little questionnaire here. Let's divide this in half. I'm going to suggest to you that James was teaching one side of this diagram and that you've got Paul, the apostle, teaching the other side. They were in agreement. They were just looking at different sides of the same picture. So you tell me, would you say that this side over here is Paul or is it James? All right, James. So we'll put James here. All right. And so this would be Paul over here. One is going to be demonstrative and the other is going to be declarative. Which one would be demonstrative? James. Okay, so here's demonstrative. So that means declarative. He's declaring over here what is true. He's saying, this is declaring what God has done. This is demonstrating as a result of what God's done. One last question. One of these is passive. The other is active. Which one do you think would fit under James? Active or passive? That's your active. This is our passive. So they're both agreeing no doubt about what he's saying here. So in reality, what we want to come to is understand, I, I use these words. There have been different statements made like this, but this is the one that I, I wrote a while back. Justification alone gives us salvation. Hear this. Justification alone gives us our salvation. But justification, which is alone, is not true justification. That person has really not been justified. Now, let's go to number six. Number six question 
Is it possible that someone would choose or could choose God, but never be justified, that is, chosen by God? Not assuming that it is a genuine faith. It is possible that someone is pursuing and seeking the benefits of God and not be able to make a distinction. I know this, that the scriptures in Romans 10, 13 says no one's ever turned away. This is what it says there. It says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So how about the last question? This one will hit us. Probably most of us in some significant way. How can someone be sure they're justified? How do you know for sure? How do you know you're chosen by God? So a lady came up to me after the first service and she mentioned a noted Christian leader and author who's renounced the faith. She says, what about that person? How do you know if you're a Christian? Let me first say that the answer to that is not based on any activity that we've done in the past. It's always going to be present tense. It's what we call the perseverance of the saints. It says those who endure to the end, Scripture says, will be saved. So it brings into the question, what about this particular person? Or put it this way. I'm meeting with a man this last week that I have just recently led to an understanding of salvation and as best we can tell and thinking is that this is a, a genuine faith and we're talking about his new faith. And he happened to have mentioned to me early in our discussions previous that this was a part of his life and so forth and so on and which are things that God would say, that's not following me. I said, so tell me about that. This person said, I think I'm ready, you know, to take the next steps and so forth in my faith. And I said, well, let me ask you this. What's happening there in your experience? We talked about that. And the point that I had to point out was this. Some of you may have seen this even being used, that I've used in the past, but I noted to him, I said, if this is Jesus and he says, follow me, and he's going that direction. This is you and me over here, and we go, okay, I gotta figure out, am I a follower or not? If I'm going this way, and I don't care if it's even this way or that way, any of those ways, I'd say that's not following. Following is coming this direction. And so I put a line here and I say, there's your ideal. You're following him where he's going. Now, this happens to be a perfect follower. It's a perfectly straight line. What if reality were spoken? It would look like this. Not, but I'll say this, it doesn't matter. We are still, every direction of the, every line is going this way. And we grow in our faith and uh, next thing you know, we're more like this. And then years and years into it, we're like this. Maybe Paul was really close to that, that line. But said, we're following always. You take something and God says, no, that is absolutely forbidden. It's wrong. You shouldn't or don't, or you must, and you're not. Therefore, you must do it. And to say, I don't care. I'm going this way, but I certainly want to be called his follower. So, well, I don't think that's the way it works. The answer is this. It's in your fruit. That's how you know it's by your fruit. 
Jesus said himself, you will know those that are mine by their fruit. What is fruit? Well, fruit is your, the way now you're thinking. Is it new thinking? It's the way you obey. Is there a new obedience? Uh, it, it, it's, it has anything to do with your life, character, and actions that just say, this is the fruit of God being with me. It's, it's evidence of following. It's just that evidence of a true following. I know with this man that this person mentioned to me, I said, I don't know the person and I don't know. But they asked, is it possible that he was never a Christian? And I noted one of the greatest preachers in in church history that preached for years the true gospel and saw thousands of people come into faith until they themselves came to faith and admitted, I've never been a Christian. Oh, could this person have loved and gotten into it and whatever and been in the midst of, hey, I love this being able to do and I get a big response and I get a public you know, audience and I get all this money for speaking and I'm talented and I'm gonna use my talent and finally his life breaks in such a point? I don't know. And says, now I can't even, I can't, I can't fool anybody now. Maybe that's the case. But I share this before I do my closing. The story of my own brother, I think, is a good story. My brother was in his, you know, late teens, uh, just in maybe 20, I don't know. And he had been a hellraiser all of his life, you know. He was a nice hellraiser. I liked him a lot. <laughs> but we just didn't have a whole lot in common. And uh, he didn't want the faith. I was shocked to learn that he had become a Christian. He got involved in a, in a group of people that were attractive to him, that loved the Lord, and he jumped all aboard, and for several months, he was like a different guy. I was like, wow. And as quickly as it began, it ended. And he says to me, I don't want this Christianity anymore, but at least I'm, I'm now a Christian. I just don't want the Christian life at all. Well, that's not the way it works. So... Now, the rest of his life, from that point on, there's no evidence of following, none at all. And I remember it was just about two years before he passed away that he, for the first time, came to church here. And he was sitting right back in that back section in the back. And, uh, and he shared, I want help. And I pointed him in the right direction in his hometown to a church, and that church did such a faithful job, and, and he came to faith. And now he comes to faith, his life changes. He starts serving in the church. He gets in a discipleship group in the church. I mean, there was no doubt in my mind that that was his change of life. Now he was, now there is fruit. Well, what is the fruit? Well, according to the Bible, how do we know we're Christians? It says in Romans 8, 16, God's spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What does he bear witness on? Good evidence. And so I look at my brother and say, now there's evidence. But those who endure to the end, showing evidence, those are those that are real Christians. See, it is possible, as Jesus said himself, I've quoted it many times from this place, the one that comes to him and says, you know, hey, did I not from my 
very, have I not been following you? Did I not perform many miracles in your name, cast out demons in your name and so forth? And he says, I never knew you. Really? Yeah, you were seeking the things of me, but you have to seek me. Then there's fruit. And so with that, it's a great way to evaluate our own hearts. Don't be so introspective. Just say, okay, is there fruit? And I think what a good witness does is they bear witness, and that's what the Holy Spirit does. I know when I came to faith, I said, I don't feel like a Christian. I, didn't, I don't feel any different, nothing. What I mean, whatever. They said, well, give it two weeks, a month, month and a half, and see if you see anything changing. And there were changes in my attitude and little things in behaviors, and I went, wow, is that God changing me? And enough time went on before I became convinced that I really am a child of God. So always look for fruit. Don't look for an experience. Look for fruit, and that's how we know. Now, let me close as I have been closing each week. The way I've been closing is simply by saying, why teach this? Because it's got to become practical to understand. It's like that lady about TFL. God gets bigger, and my life gets transformed. You see, power is found in truth because God says the truth will set you free. Now, I personally believe, but I keep saying, I may be wrong. There have been great people who disagree. I believe these are the doctrines of grace found in Scripture. I'm really glad that there is a historical precedence to say it's not that we're coming with something new and here's a new idea or something, but I believe it's the historical teaching of the Bible. And in doing so, I think that's where we find our weapons to be able to deal with who we are. And you know what? I don't want you to get confused about the ugly struggle that's still a part of your life. You know, Paul, early in his ministry, I'm the least of the apostles. There's a humility. At the end of his life, he says, no, I'm the chief of all sinners. He really believed that? Yeah. Because he knew what was inside so I'm talking to my friend, just trusting in the Lord. And he says, hey, I want to give you a compliment about, and he complimented something that in ministry he's observed. And it was something that would appear very selfless. I think it is selfless. But I said, do you know, you don't know me, but I am so, so Selfish. Nah, you aren't. I said, oh, yes, I am. Ask Carol. <laughs> Ask my kids. But at the same time, I see how selfish. It's just like it gets, okay, what is the depth of my selfishness? Will I ever see it? But I'll say this. There are weapons to fight selfishness. And those weapons, in part, are the doctrines of grace. And you find yourself fighting in the grace of God's power and what he can do. And you can win victories. Never to win fully, never to perfectly overcome, that happens in death. So don't be confused. By, but look at all the sin. Can I, be, can I be genuine? Yeah. By the fact you fight. And you use the weapons that God has given us. So put this weapon among others. 
And I think what's going to happen is you're going to be able to see faith get easier. Faith's going to get easier when God gets bigger. And that's why I'm preaching this series. So connect the dots. It's not just so God gets bigger and we said the right things. No, it's so that faith gets easier. Because when you feel, does God love me when I have MS? You can say, ah, but I know, but I believe that God's love is beyond comparison. And that's when the attitude of heart says, that's good enough for me. That's really where we go. Pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are going to ask you that you would, you would grant us to be able to uh, be able to see that glimpse of your love through these doctrines of grace. We're going to ask you, if you would, to let us embrace mystery and let us, as a result, find intimacy with you. So, Father, show us what's true and what's not. I pray for all here seeking to understand you and to know you, to see the cross and see that love, that those of us that are studying might see well beyond behind it and see that amazing love from eternity past. And may we die to who we are and live to you as a result. We give you thanks. In the great name of our Savior Jesus, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.